Well, you sound good, church, clapping and singing. Great to see you all this morning. I trust that you and yours had a tremendous Thanksgiving around the table and uh, seeking to emulate an attitude of gratitude, something that God has called us as people to walk in every single moment of every single day of our lives, for our God is a good God. Amen? That song that we sang, Remember Your Promise, O God. Well, I'm so grateful that as we transition next week into the Advent season, that God did remember us as people. That during the Advent season are those four Sundays that lead into Christmas Day. And I hope that you've got your Christmas music out. Um, some of you may be a little stringent on when you're supposed to listen to that. Um, I've been listening to Christmas music for a couple of weeks now, and uh, our halls are decked a little bit here, but I want to remind you after service today, if you want to stay and lend a hand, uh, we are going to finish decking these halls here and uh, getting our, 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 uh, our building ready for what will be a tremendous Advent season, begin reading through the book of Ruth. We're going to walk through Ruth 1, 2, 3, and 4 through the Advent season. We're going to go back to Bethlehem there where our Lord was born and uh, look at the book of Ruth, Naomi, and the bitterness that overcame them and how God's grace was enough. So next week, read Ruth chapter 1 in preparation. If you are new with us, my name is Jordan Johnson have the joy of serving as our lead pastor, one of our elders here at Pleasant Valley Church, and it is our joy to have you join us today in what really is an incredible season in the life of our body. As we see God doing some pretty supernatural things in and through His Word, and uh, we're so grateful that you're here. Take us up on the invitation to fill out that Connect card. Let us know how we can minister to you come alongside you and understand a little bit better how it is that we can pray for you. Well, if you have your Bible, Nehemiah chapter 13, I hope you're making your way there. If you are new with us, we have walked through 12 chapters of the book of Nehemiah. We love to preach through books of the Bible here because we believe when you open the Word of God, you are opening the mouth of God. And so we have looked at these 12 chapters in the book of Nehemiah, and we're going to bring this plane to a land today from Nehemiah 13. This book has been highly instructive for me. I hope it has been for you. Highly inspiring for me as we've seen the passionate pursuit of just a normal dude named Nehemiah who was willing to surrender his own will to God's will. And God did a tremendous work through our brother. I can't wait to meet Nehemiah one day, hug his neck, and just thank him for the way in which he allowed God to use him. Because, friends, um, he has helped us think about, I hope, our own passionate pursuit. You know, we have said that a passionate pursuit is when you want to do something for the glory of God and the good of people. A passionate pursuit is when you say, I want to do this for the glory of God and for the good of people. And that's what Nehemiah has done. And what we have in chapter 13, kind of high level, is God is not okay with your sin. God is not okay with your sin. And through the example here in Nehemiah 13, 
you, I hope, are going to see that you cannot take your sin lightly. You must seek to kill it. You must seek to mortify it. And you must replace sinful tendencies and behaviors with righteous living that would give glory ultimately to God. So let's ask God for help through prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Father, what a privilege it is to gather with your people under your word, to sing, to clap, to rejoice in you. Oh God, we pray that as you've used this tremendous study through Nehemiah, that you would use it again today to edify us, your people, to build us up. Lord, some of us have had um, a good week, but a challenging week because the holidays seem to bring out uh, emotional challenges in our lives that from days gone by uh, were not good or uh, people that we miss around this time of year that are not around the table or not a phone call or a text or an email away. And Lord, that hurts. And I pray that you would use this, your text, to strengthen and edify your people. God, for we are a people that for some of us are emotionally and spiritually and physically tired. And we're grateful as we've sung today that you use weakness to demonstrate your strength. So I pray for my dear friends here and those watching online that are in a pit right now, that you would help them learn how to praise you out of that pit and find strength in you and in your word. God, I also pray that you would educate, not just edify your people, but educate those among us or tuning in that are not your people because they right now are not resting in the finished work of Christ alone. For them, Christianity is Jesus plus church attendance, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus good works, and Lord, we know your word would say that is not the gospel. So thank you that the gospel is your gracious work, that it is by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of your beautiful name alone. So God, by your spirit, would you convince someone today that they cannot keep your law? They cannot do it. They need a savior. They need Jesus. And I pray that you would save them today. And for all of us, Lord, glorify your name through this time in your word. Give us the ability to focus. We know the enemy is... Is, is roaring around even in a space like this and seeking to carry our mind off in places that it should not go. But God, we need your help to be focused to hear what you have for us today. So would you give us the spectacles of your Holy Spirit as we view this text, all for the glory of the great name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said. So at the beginning of next year, um, 2024, January 3rd through January 9th, uh, Ember and I and our family are headed, not home, but headed back to Texas. And we are vacationing, and we are looking forward to that time of being back. But Ember and I grew up in very small towns, talking about two to 3,000 people small. And every time I go back to, our, to my hometown, uh, Ember grew up about seven miles from where I grew up um, in a 3,000-member town, so we come from small-town North Texas is where we grew up. And every time I go back to, our, to, to my hometown, 
I always look around and I think, wow, this place is so small. And I think, wow, this place has changed so much. And, and by God's grace, God has allowed our family to live in various parts of the country. I've been overseas a number of times on various mission trips, and so I've been around many different climates and contexts and dialects and all kinds of different seasons of life, and that has gained great perspective, good perspective, beneficial perspective for me, for Ember, our family, as anywhere you move, anywhere you live, there's good, there's bad, there's indifferent, and you can look around and, and see God's goodness and His handiwork all around you. But when I go back to my hometown, I just think this place has changed. And today in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah goes not back to his hometown, but he goes back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, it has changed so much from when he left. In chapter 8, you remember, Nehemiah and the people had experienced a revival. If you're new to the Bible or don't know much about the book of Nehemiah, all these sermons are on Spotify, but just to bring you up to speed, or Apple Music for you Apple people, but just to bring you up to speed, Nehemiah 1 and 2, Nehemiah asked for permission to leave sipping wine and eating steak with the king, to go to Jerusalem to rebuild these massive walls, and he did it alongside the people in about 52 days. Massive feet. The reason those walls were important is because these walls protected the Jewish nation from the rival brutal nations so that one day God could preserve his people so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem and be raised a Jew and come and pay for the sins of his people. That's the crux of why Nehemiah and these walls are so vital to the overall story of salvation history. And in chapter 8, after the people of God have been away from God in exile for 70 years, the Bible guy, Ezra, the teacher, gets out Genesis Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and he opens up the law, and the people weep. They weep because they realize we've not kept God's law. Second of all, they weep because they realize how merciful God has been to not just wipe them out in spite of not keeping the law for 70 years. Once the wall goes up, Chapter 8 happens, and then in chapter 10, the people get so serious about this revival in their hearts, they get out their pens, and 84 of the leaders say, we're going to sign a covenant. We're going to sign a document that says, we are going to keep God's law, particularly when it comes to the Sabbath, particularly when it comes to marriage, and to our financial obligation to take care of the temple. And chapter 10 ends with, we will not forsake the house of our God. The climax of the book is chapter 12 last week. Because anytime God does a corporate work among his people, it calls for partying and it calls for celebration. These walls go up, the people have this massive celebration, the singers are out, they're singing to the Lord, 
They're giving God praise. They're recognizing we did not do this. God did this in spite of everything that we did wrong. Look, these walls are back up. And notice chapter 12, verse 43, we pick up the narrative, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, see, for God had made them rejoice. I love that phrase. God made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Then notice 44, on that day, there Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. Now remember, keep chapter 10 in mind. They're doing this in verses 44 to 47 because they told God we're going to keep our financial obligation, and they're doing that. Then notice 13, our text for today. And on that day, now I would argue, I would argue with humility that verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 13 should actually go in chapter 12. Because notice on that day, if you go back to chapter 12, verse 43, it begins with on that day. So on that day, on that day, so on that same day, during that time of celebration, that time of dedication, that time the walls are up, God is good, let's rejoice. Notice they read from the book of Moses, again, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They're reading the law. Notice that no Ammonite, just particularly right in your margin, Deuteronomy 23, 3 to 5, most likely, and that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, the reason they can't enter the Ammonite or these other rival nations, they can't enter into the assembly is because of their idolatry, because they hate God, because they don't love God, because they don't fear God. Of course, anybody was welcome to believe. We're going to see next week, Ruth, she was not a Jew, y'all. Ruth was a Moabite. And yet she gets to come worship with the people because this is not about ethnic distinction. This is about worship distinction. People who are going to be in this assembly have to be people who love and fear God. And then verses 2 through 3, I don't have it on the screen, but they do that. It's professionally simple. They read the Word of God. Ammonites can't come in. Rival nations can't come in. And then verses 2 and 3, they put them out. They don't let them come in. It's just refreshingly simple to see them hear the word and do the word. Great. Now, if Hollywood were writing this narrative, this is where the book would end. And it would say, and they lived. But Nehemiah does not end happily ever after. Nehemiah ends on a bummer. Because the Bible is not a fairy tale. The books of the Bible is not a fairy tale. It's not a Hollywood drama. God is a realist. And chapter 13 is the reality of the sinfulness of sin. Chapter 13 is the people of God are going to end this narrative by compromising in four ways, and Nehemiah is going to go to work on it. He's going to lose it today, all right? He's going he's to lose it. He's going to start pulling people's hair out, pushing people, throwing furniture. I mean, this is, like, this, this is serious. 
And so I want you to note four things today in your outline, four things, four compromises that Nehemiah is going to confront. So notice, first of all, there is, in verses 4 to 9, a relational compromise. They are going to compromise relationally. Now notice, now, before this, now that's important, because before this is the period before Nehemiah returned back to Jerusalem. According to verse 6, we're not going to look at it, but Nehemiah asked for permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem. Somewhere in chapter 12, Nehemiah has been governing for 12 years. He's led a great reformation. He's done a great work for God, and he goes back to Persia, back to sitting by the king, making sure he doesn't die, sipping his wine, eating steak. At some point, he asked the king, can I go back? I want to go back and check on the people. I want to go back and check on the situation. And that's what this is talking about. Now before this, before he returned back. Now we don't know how long Nehemiah went back. Probably at least a year. He leaves Jerusalem, goes back to Persia for a year. And now before he comes back. Notice, this is what he comes back to. A mess. Spiritual compromise everywhere. Notice, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, temple, and who was related to Tobiah. So the priest, the temple leader, he is related to Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? Tobiah is a rock in Nehemiah's sandal. He just cannot get away from this guy. By the way, Tobiah is an Ammonite. And we could say an agitating Ammonite. He's an agitator. He's, been, he's the one, you remember, who criticized this whole wall building. He's a, he's a rival governor, by the way. He's a rival dignitary in the land. And what do we read in verses 1 to 3? That Ammonites are supposed to be excluded from the assembly. And so this hater of God, this guy hates God, and he wants to kill Nehemiah. He can't stand Nehemiah. He doesn't want this whole thing going forth. And notice Eliashib, notice what the priest does. Verse 5, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain, the offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, oil, which were given by the commandment to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contribution of the priests. I mean, it is unthinkable that an enemy of God is living it up. Like, he's not just hanging out, he's living it up in the temple. I mean, this would be equivalent to the Joker living in the Batcave. And Alfred be like, come on in. This is bad. This is an Ammonite who's not even supposed to be in the assembly, and yet the priest has kicked all the clergy out of their rooms. That's who all these are, the clergy. These are the people that are supposed to be leading the temple. And Eliashib said, get all your stuff and move it out because Tobiah is going to move in here. I mean, this this is unthinkable. Notice verse 7, Nehemiah confronts it. He says, I discovered the evil. Notice he doesn't say, well, that was nice. You gave somebody somewhere to live. He calls it evil. That Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And notice, I was very angry. He's angry because these people knew better. He's angry because these people signed a covenant that said they would keep the Scripture. 
They confessed sin. They committed to God when it came to marriage, when it came to Sabbath keeping, when it came to temple worship. In chapter 13, they break the very things they said that they would not do. On top of that, Malachi, the prophet, what's Malachi prophesying about, prophesying? Because Malachi is prophesying during this time. And Malachi, and if you read the book of Malachi, the book of Malachi is about the people of God not keeping the Sabbath and not honoring marriage and not supporting the temple. So not only had these people heard the word from Ezra back in chapter 8, not only in chapter 10 did they say we're going to keep it, but they are hearing preaching all the time from faithful Malachi who's saying, follow God. So these people heard the word and they're hearing the word and yet Jesus is going to do, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah is going to do what Jesus will do. He's going to cleanse the temple. The temple's defiled right now. We got God haters, like with their feet up on the couch, hanging out. And so Jesus is, or Nehemiah is going to clear it, but notice, I threw all the furniture out of Tobiah, of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then, verse 9, I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. He fumigated the place. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah cleanses it. He kicked Tobiah out. Now, some people may struggle with this. Because in our cultural moment where we live, it is all about being nice, affirming everything people do or people love. That is not the attitude of Nehemiah. In this John 2 moment, go read John chapter 2 and see Jesus' fury in the temple. So many people have this idea of Jesus being Mr. Nice Guy. And you've got the God of the Old Testament. He's mean. He's a drab. He's outdated. And then Jesus, he's holding lambs and kissing babies and has long, flowing, feathered hair and looks like he grew up in California and surfs. And they say, I want that Jesus. That's the one that I want. Because he, he would never call error. He would never tell me that I'm wrong. He would always affirm me and my heart's desire. But yet, Jesus has some of the most scathing words in the New Testament for that which defiles God. And you can't let people get away with that view of Jesus. You just can't let them get away with it. You must get the Bible out, and you must show them. Let me show you your Jesus. Turn them to John chapter 2. Turn them to John 6. Turn them to Luke 7. Turn them to Matthew 18. Turn them to a number of texts to show them that the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament, and that Jesus had the same code of ethics as God because he is God. So Nehemiah has righteous anger here. He goes to work. Their compromising had to be confronted. Now, the New Testament, we have the equivalent of church discipline. It's parallel when God's people compromise. When God's people begin to sin and compromise and live as though they can do whatever they want with whoever they want, however they want, and I'll do what I want to do. I'm just going to do me, bro, and leave me alone. 
that must be confronted. If someone's going to be a, a member of a church and claim to follow God and love Jesus, it must be confronted. Whether you do it, I do it, or anybody that rebels against God's Word and does it habitually and calls it okay, it must be confronted. This is a foreign practice in many churches, and this is why churches are in the state that they are in today. We could do a whole sermon series on that, but this is why so many churches practice Church discipline, the idea of 1 Corinthians 5, purging evil from among you. When an individual member has taken a posture of, I don't care about the things of God, but I'm going to play like I'm a Christian, and I'm going to continue to go on as though everything is okay, that not being confronted is not a biblical church. Because it is not popular to confront sin, but for the glory of God and the good of the church, we must do it. One man said it well, listen to this. He said, if you do church discipline, people will leave your church. But if you don't do church discipline, Jesus will leave your church. Mama. Maybe this is the order of the day. Maybe Jesus has moved on from many churches. And I would argue that that's the case for their failure to confront sinful practices in the congregation and maybe sometimes in the pulpit and on the church staff. May that never be said of us going forward. Amen, church? May it never be said of us. Friends, you hold me accountable. I want to be held accountable. I want to hold you accountable because this is what the Bible has called us to be. This is not a club. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And there is a certain ethic that the Bible will call us to live. You say, Jordan, I I sin all the time. I do too, but I hate it. And I'm seeking to rail against it. May we never compromise on clear instructions in God's Word. And I believe this passage is a warning to us that if you take sin lightly in your life and then you bring that to this congregation and you will not confront it, then it will take us down the path of this spiritual demise. It must be confronted. If I have sin in my life and you see it and you don't confront me in it lovingly, you don't really love me. You'll love me enough to say, brother, I love you, but... Matthew 18, go check it out. So they relationally compromise. Second of all, they financially compromise. Notice verses 10 to 14. I also found out and this is Nehemiah, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to his field. So these are the people leading worship. Because the people are not paying their contributions, not paying their tithes, not paying their offerings, the priests can't support themselves anymore, so they have to go out and find a job, we would just say in corporate America, in the field, because they've got to have some money to come in because the people of God have neglected financially their responsibility to care for the temple, and a part of that would be to care for the clergy, care for the priests, care for the people who are also spiritually caring for them. So, 11, I confronted the officials. Now, why the officials? Well, the officials are the one who signed the document back in chapter 10 that said, we're not going to let this happen. We're not going to forsake the house of our God. We're not going to let the people do that. And notice, Nehemiah says, why is the house of God forsaken? Now, you remember the way chapter 10 ends is they say, we will not neglect the house of God. You come to chapter 13, they've neglected the house of God. And Nehemiah says, why have you neglected the house of God? So it's time for action. Notice 11. 
And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil in the storehouses. And I, 13, appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah, the priest of Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zechur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. Hmm. Reliable people in leadership. What a novel idea, huh? And their duty was to distribute to their brothers, remember me, here's a prayer, Nehemiah prayer, remember Nehemiah prays all throughout this, remember me, oh my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out any good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. So notice Nehemiah is not in step with popular culture, but he, wants, he has a passionate pursuit. He wants to do something for the glory of God and the good of people. And so there's, there's slippage here, financial compromise, and I just want to remind you, PVC members, as a body, nobody pays our bills but us. We don't, we don't, no, nobody sends us, you know, third party, says, Here, here's your check, take care of yourself. No, we pay our own bills, and part of being a member here is we're shouldering this responsibility together. Remember, my, me and my family, we contribute as well. Remember the priests? They're giving money as well to the congregation. They're giving money to the pot to support even themselves in one sense. So all of us, all of us as leaders, all of us are contributing, and this is why our, our budget talk is so providential right now, right, to look at that budget and recommit yourself as a member to support and pray and think about 2024 and what kind of financial goals do you have of supporting the church God has given you. Again, I'm talking to members. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here, but that, that budget is our PVC budget, which we all shoulder responsibility. So may we not financially compromise this year the way they did here, third of all. I want you to see they compromised their time. Time compromise. Notice 15. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, 16, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. So these people could give a rip about the Sabbath. If you went to Jerusalem on the Sabbath, it would, no, it would look like any other city in the ancient world. There was no distinction here. There was no, these are the people of God. Remember God gave the Sabbath because the Sabbath was meant to show the people that their God would care for them if they would take that day off. It was meant for the nations to look at the people of God and be like, man, they take a day off every week and yet God provides for them. And finally, the Sabbath was meant to point to our eternal Sabbath in Jesus Christ when we would rest and look to him alone to accomplish all the work needed for us to have a right relationship with God. And so it pointed forward, but it was practically for their own good. And, and it's practically for your good that you take a day off. Did you know that? Some of you, I think, in this room think, I just need a vacation. Maybe. But I would suggest that if you'll just take a day off every week, you won't be so dependent on vacations. Vacations, when you go on vacation, you can actually vacation. But if you'll learn a rhythm of rest, 
intentionally every single week. God will refuel you physically, mentally, and emotionally so that you can go 100% for Him the other six days. Now, some of us need to talk about laziness on the other six days. Hello. But we're just talking about this today, that, that we need to learn to rest well. If you work hard, you can rest well because you can know that God never rests, God never takes a day off, and He's always providing for you, always taking care of you. Some of us think we're Superman or Superwoman, and you're not. So either take a day off voluntarily or end up in an ambulance from overworking yourself and you get to take a Sabbath that is involuntary and you get to get in one of those uh, um, vehicles that has a, uh, you know, goes to a really large place with other people who are sick. So take a day off, all right? Take a day off. Say, I can't afford to. No, I would say you can't afford not to with all that God has called you to do. And then I want you to notice 17, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil that you're doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers, he goes historical, did your fathers not act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you're bringing more wrath on Israel? So you're making us a target, leaders, for more of God's judgment on us by profaning the Sabbath? Like we got a target. We already have a target on our back for 70 years of foolishness, and now you're making our target even bigger. Notice 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, watch what Nehemiah does here. I commanded that the doors should be shut, and I gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath, and I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath, then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, but I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do it again, I'm going to lay my hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. This, this Hakaliah, this son, of, this, this son of Hakaliah, he must have been an intimidating figure. I mean, he says, you guys keep messing with the Sabbath. I'm going to put my hands on you. Notice 22. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves. Like, you're so dirty, go purify yourself and get back to work. And guard the gates. Keep the Sabbath day. And here's another prayer. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. My friends, my friends, my friends, we must never play with sin. The Puritans often referred to sin as baby snakes that you will pet, and those baby snakes will grow up into serpents and kill you. You need to survey baby snakes, sinful snakes in your life right now that you're just petting, and kill them, because they are going to grow up to be serpents, and they will take you out. And, 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 and that is how you've got to be vigilant. You've got you've to tend the fire of your love for God. You've got to keep putting logs of Bible reading and prayer and confession of sin and Lord's Day worship and fasting and all the, you, that. You, you, don't, you stop putting logs on the fire, it will finally go out. So friends, we must not compromise. Fourth of all, there's a domestic compromise. Notice 23. In those days, also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Again, think back to chapter 10. Remember, we're not going to give our daughters to pagans. We're not going to do it, and yet they're doing it. Remember, this is not about ethnicity. This is about faith. They could marry someone outside of 
their ethnicity. But who they could not marry is someone who did not love God. As I said a few weeks ago, all the single ladies, all the single men, when you're looking for a husband or a wife, the question is not primarily how they look on the outside. That is important, but it's not primary. What is primary is they are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are growing, and watch this, they love Him more than they'll ever love you. That's who you need to look for. Someone that will love the Lord way more than they'll ever love you. They're not going to make an idol out of you. And because they love God the way they should, they'll love you the way they ought. And this is the demise of the nation. Notice the effects. And half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod. Their children don't even know Hebrew. They're speaking the language of the pagans. And they could not speak the language of Judah. That's, that's Hebrew. But only the language of each people. Now, this is a big deal. It's a big deal when your kids don't know the language of faith because they now can't pass it on. Notice Nehemiah's response. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Wow. What do we do with all this? Well, first of all, when he says curse here, don't think he cussed them out. Like you and your sports team, I know some of you. Not cussing them out. All he's doing in chapter 10, you remember? They said, if we don't keep the law, put a curse on us. Remember that? All he's doing right now is giving them what they asked for. He's putting a curse on them that they asked for. Now, the issue of beating them and pulling their hair, that's a little more difficult to deal with. I will give it to you. And um, some could be highly critical of Nehemiah. Maybe there is some warrant. I mean, we don't beat people into following the Lord. Um, he obviously is upset and emotional and caught up in the moment. But I, I think what scholars will do with this, and it seems to make sense to me, is, is this was a public, pulling someone's hair out was a public way of, of dethroning them and showing them that they are under discipline. And so we, we could spend time talking about that. But the reality is, is that Nehemiah, as a governor here, he's not a pastor, he's a governor, he's a president, he's, a, he's ruling these folks, and he uses force. Now notice, I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Then he goes historical, 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we, 27, then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. So the priest's son marries Sanballat's daughter. Notice that. The priest's son marries Sanballat's daughter. Remember, Sanballat, hater of God, he and Tobiah are these two rebels. Notice, I chased him from me, 29, Another prayer, remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then notice summary here as we close. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, another prayer, O oh my God, for 
good. So Nehemiah basically says, God, I did my best. Remember me. These folks compromised relationally, financially, chronologically with their time, and domestically. And Nehemiah says, Lord, remember me. Remember all the good works I sought to do. I did my best to try to reform them. So what are we to do with this? Well, obviously God wants it to end this way. There's no happily ever after here, and obviously God preserved Scripture, and He wanted this book to end with a bummer. And I think the way God, the reason God wants Nehemiah to end with a bummer is because it forces us to lean into the future, does it not? We are at the end of Old Testament history. Remember in your Bible, Nehemiah in most Bibles is the 16th book in your table of contents, although it actually belongs at the end of the Old Testament. Because 400 years from now, Jesus will come. Jesus will come on the scene. So it ends this way on a bummer, actually looking for Christmas. The narrative of Nehemiah preaches an implicit message that, this, that God's people cannot keep God's law, and they need someone who can. God's people can't keep God's law, and they need someone that can. Furthermore, I would say that Nehemiah ends looking not just for a king, but for a Davidic king. You remember in chapter 12, it talked all about David, 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 David. And then here in chapter 13, um, you have a priest, you have a temple, you have all these things, but you have no king of the nation. That king will not show up. Even during the intertestamental time, 400 years between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. But what do you read the opening lines of the book of Matthew? Notice chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. The king has come. So the Old Testament leaves us longing for a king. Israel needed a king. Israel needed a leader that would model and live the life of obedience to God. And so Jesus comes and he is David's king. Notice chapter 1 of Matthew when Jesus' stepdad gets the news. You're going to have, you're, you, th- this is going to happen. And, and the, the announcement says, As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Nehemiah ends in darkness, and when you turn to the New Testament, it opens in light. Salvation has come. This is why they gave him the name Jesus, because he was going to come and save his people from their sins. Nehemiah leaves us longing for Christmas. When you get done with Nehemiah, you should say, Maranatha, Jesus come, Jesus come. This one born in Bethlehem will keep God's law. This one born in Bethlehem will obey where Israel failed. Jesus will come and take our curse. They beat him. They plucked out his beard They didn't pluck his hair out like Nehemiah did to the Jews, but they plucked Jesus' beard out, another way of mocking him, making fun of him. They spit on Jesus. He ultimately bore our sins upon the tree. And Jesus had this passionate pursuit to do something great for the glory of God and the good of people. 
And today, as God's people, we are the beneficiaries of Jesus' passionate pursuit, are we not? Because He won for us, friends, a right relationship with God. We now have the Holy Spirit in us, and there will be times of sin and failure. There will be times of revival. will ebb and flow. There'll be times where, man, I'm really doing great in my walk with God. There's other times where that's, what it, that, that's our history as a people. And so we wait, don't we? We wait for the second advent of our Lord Jesus. When He comes, He'll make all things new, no sin, no shame. God's law will be completely kept. And as the old hymn says from the 1800s, to God be the glory, great things He hath done, so loved He the world that He gave us His Son. Read Ruth 1 this week. Next week, we're going to look at Ruth through the lenses of Advent and get your hearts ready for this season of waiting for the King has come. May God seal in all of our hearts so much that He taught us through this great book that we might live with a reckless abandon for the glory of God, for the good of people. Our Father, we bless Your name today. We thank You for our Lord Jesus We thank you, Jesus, that where Israel failed, you never did. Even Nehemiah's good efforts here, God, he did his best, but even he was a flawed individual. We see some of that today in the narrative, and yet we're grateful for Nehemiah's work. We're grateful that our salvation is not dependent upon our law-keeping, but our salvation is dependent on the law-keeper, our Lord Jesus. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you that you have come and you are coming again. I pray that you would help us from this text realize that we cannot take sin lightly. We cannot compromise. There are baby snakes of sin that we cuddle and and often pet and, and justify. And Lord, thank you that you, by your grace, give us the victory to mortify those baby snakes so they don't grow up into massive serpents and bring spiritual demise in our lives individually, our lives corporately. Lord, would you raise our awareness of holiness in this congregation? Would you raise an awareness of our need for you, our dependency upon you? Lord, for apart from you, we really can do nothing. Lord, thank you that you have provided for us in your word uh, something that makes us what we are not, teaches us what we don't know, and ultimately gives us great hope that our salvation is secure in our Lord Jesus Christ. So seal these things in our mind. Thank you that we do have victory in Jesus. And we pray all of this, Father, in his precious name and by the Spirit. And everybody said, can you stand to your feet and let's respond in singing.